Hello, welcome to episode 67 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to figure out what it is that hooks people on this wonderfully infuriating game. Rod Murray's my name, and joining me from the Scotland studios of the Golf Australia Media Empire today is your is your host for this episode, should I say, John Huggin. Huggy, welcome. This is one I'm sure that you've been keen to do for a while. Lee Westwood, he's been one of the game's very best players for a very long time, and you've known him for most of it. Uh, well, I wouldn't say most of it, but I've, I've known him, I think I first met Lee in 1995. Um, part of the, the banter that goes on between the two of us is that... Um, Way back in the day, I won uh, the what is actually the oldest 72-hole amateur tournament in the world, the Leaving Gold Medal in Scotland. And uh, Lee also was a, a winner of that. And the the banter usually goes along the familiar lines. I, I always say to him, now, tell me, Lee, how, how many times did you win the Leaving Gold Medal? Because uh, I won it twice, and uh, he only won it once. And of course, his response is always uh, the same answer. Um, yeah, every time I played in it. <laughs> Very nice. That's a lovely uh, back and forth, a circular sort of an argument. There's a lot of Ryder Cup and major chat in this uh, discussion, which you'd expect. We kind of underrate Westwood in so many ways, don't we? And you touch on it with him. It's almost cruel, a little bit like Montgomery, that he hasn't won a major, isn't it? Well, if you look at his record in the majors, it's um, you know I, I, I think I mentioned in the in the in the interview the the Sandy Lyle is the is the classic example of someone who won two majors in in one hundred major appearances, and there's only two other top tens other than the two wins. <laughs> uh, in comparison with Lee, I mean Lee's got umpteen top tens. I think it's about twenty something like that, and he's been close, as we all know, three or four or five times to winning. The Open, the Masters, all sorts. Um, he's been he's been a bit unlucky. I mean, history uh, will remember him as, as certainly one of the best players never to win one. Um, I, I don't think he's going to win one now. I don't think even he thinks that. But um, yeah, hell of a record. Right. Tremendous player. It, it goes directly to that point that your friend and mine, Mike Clayton, often talks about, doesn't it? People always saying, oh, what they want to be is consistent. Actually, what you want to do, <laughs> Sandy Lyle is the pin-up child for it. There is it. Two wins, two other top tens in 100 starts, and he's lauded as a dual major champion. Yeah. Lee Westwood, strings of top tens and <laughs> top 25s, but not a trophy in the cabinet, and uh, gets overlooked in that discussion. So it, uh, it goes to that point. Uh, one last thing before we go, or two last things before we go. He's a real straight shooter, Westwood, isn't he? Uh, he's got a strong personality, and if he's got a, if he has an opinion, you won't be in doubt as to what it is. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's prepared to say things. I mean, he's um, he's been one of the few that's uh, you know owned up, if you like, to to going to play in the the Saudi um, circuit if it's going if it's ever going to happen. Um, I think, like most people, I'm getting tired of waiting to hear who's actually going to be playing in the damn things. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's been prepared to take the flak. Um, yeah, uh, which you know, I mean, the, it's it's definitely nobody can defend the human rights stuff in Saudi Arabia, and, and I don't think Lee, no. you know, I think he says in the interview that he's not defending that either. It's purely a money thing. He's, at least he's he's honest enough to admit that, which many of the others are not. Yeah, indeed. You didn't talk a lot about it with him. That was probably partly my fault, Huggy, because the timing of the interview when it was going to come out, mm. I wasn't sure where we'd be with all of that. But yes, he's more than uh, more as you say. He's one of the few who. It reminds me a little bit of Adam Scott. When Adam Scott didn't want to play in the Olympics, he just said mm. so, that he didn't think that the game should be in the Olympics. That Olympics, 
10 or 15 players, you know, chickened out on the notion of the Zika virus, which was by far the more cowardly way out, I think. And uh, you've got to have some respect to agree with him or not about that. Uh, Well, it's a fantastic chat. I hope people enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you for dropping by to give us a quick intro, Huggy. And let's get to Lee Westwood. Lee Westwood, welcome to the Thing About Golf podcast. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you. And I always start with the first question, and this is, um, what was the thing about golf for you? I think the thing about golf for me was probably the responsibility. The fact that it wasn't a team sport, which I played um, a fair bit before golf, and the fact that the responsibility was with me, whether that be for results or even, you know, the performance and just going out and practicing, you know, in golf, nobody kind of drags you out there. You have to do it yourself. You have to be your own cheerleader. And yeah. Were you a frustrated midfielder at football or something before that? Frustrated left wing right. okay. player. Yeah. I, I don't know how good I was because they moved me around a lot. So clearly I didn't dominate one position. So left wing, were you, you don't kick with your left foot, do you? Kick with both feet. Yeah. Yes, I was injured um, when I was nine, ten years of age and uh, I couldn't swing my right foot out, so I had to learn to kick with my left leg or not play football at all, so I learned to kick with my left leg. Not a bad talent to have, though. Yeah. Yeah, football. So So how did you find golf then at at that point? Was it your dad that took you out there? Well, nobody in my family played golf, but uh, for some reason... My grandparents had bought me half a set of golf clubs. I think it was something to do with the guy that my mum worked for. He had half a set of golf clubs and um, he was trying to get rid of them. So my mum bought them and gave them to my grandparents to give to me for Christmas. And uh, they sat in the sat in my wardrobe for about eight months. And uh, it got to the August after that and one summer holidays. And my dad finally got sick of me throwing stones in where he was fishing because he loved to be right. uh, fishing and uh, I hated it and um, that was it we went and played at the local municipal golf club Kilton Forest I ate a few good ones a lot of bad ones went around about 180 yeah. um, I think he probably beat me and really fell in love with the game from there you know a couple out in the middle and it felt yeah. good yeah once it gets like the challenge it. yeah, yeah, yeah. just uh, enjoyed the challenge now I have to touch on this because you mentioned your grandparents there. Is this the grandparents that owned the uh, the dancing it is, studio? Yes. Tell me a bit more about that. And I think we're going to see you on Strictly Come Dancing at some point, are we not? Well, I would doubt that. No. Um, why, why would come on, you? You told me you've got some talent in that area. I, I, I haven't got enough time. Yeah. You know, we, we play golf through that part of the season. Right. That's my excuse anyway. It was the grandparents that had an old-time dancing school, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad conned me basically by saying that going and learning uh all time dancing would be good for my balance uh-huh. and help my football right so okay. i went along did it for a couple of years uh got highly commended in the lilac waltz and the boston two-step uh-huh. as you do um and they probably did help my uh my football probably help my golf as well you know um did you have you retained any of it no no, not really. You're not it wouldn't take to me that. long. To, it wouldn't take me long to get the steps back. Yeah. You know, um, I, I would think I could pick it up again. Yeah. Did you tell your friends about this, or was this a secret? Yeah, most of them knew. Yeah. 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 You know, most of the lads had sisters that went to me 
grandparents and I, and I was there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, brushed brushed it off. And uh, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Now I know you're. Um, we've talked before about um, your amateur career. I'm always interested in that for um, for one particular reason, which I'm sure you can guess. But um, it, it seemed to me that you you left the amateur game having succeeded at a very high level, but didn't get the recognition that you maybe deserved. Is that how you look back on it? I don't know. I, I know you it, probably don't care at I, this I point. Won, but, I, I won the British Youths and uh, the Leaving Gold Medal once. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, but you've got to be good to win that twice, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm far better player than I ever ever was. Yeah. Um, and... It would. You talk, if you're talking about getting in the Walker Cup team, then it would have been nice to play for the Walker Cup team. But uh, you know, some of the excuses I was given why I didn't get picked. You know, there were too many English players in the team that year and things like that. Probably led to me turning professional and uh, you know not relying on selectors to pick me for something. Yeah, I mean, I lived in that world for a while, and some of the things I saw. You look back now and you just shake your head. I mean, the perfect. You just mentioned one of the perfect examples I once wrote a column saying that they've never picked the best Great Britain and Ireland Walker Cup team never because it's a quota system I mean if the best 10 players were all English that wouldn't be the team hmm. or Scottish or whatever you yeah know. I mean Michael I remember getting a note from Michael Benalic being mortally offended by this but it was true yeah you know I've always thought that teams should be picked on you know a pure ability not where you're from or you know yeah. Other things, yeah. But do you look back on that time in your life with with some pleasure? I mean, what? Yeah, you know, playing the amateur game and the amateur circuit made a lot of great friends. Played a lot of good golf courses. Um, you know, British youths and British boys and British amateurs were always held around fantastic golf yeah. courses. Normally, links courses, better as well. courses, and sometimes you play on the tour. You know, well, I think the British amateur. Yeah. I played at uh, my first one. I remember playing at Muirfield. Um, when Rolf Muntz won yeah yeah um, uh, English amateurs I remember playing at Saunton places like that yeah. British boys um, places like Formby Hunstanton Montrose mm. um, so you got to play great golf courses ones we wouldn't play now because they're just not long enough yeah um, but certainly if you were doing say a tour of the British Isles and you did. You wanted to not play courses on the Open Championship rotor. The if you followed the path that British amateurs, British youths, and British boys were played at Glasgow Gales, for instance, yeah, is a fantastic golf course. Yeah. So um, if you followed that, then you would you would have a fantastic time playing some great links golf courses. In, in the midst of all this, at what point, or was there a point where you, that you can identify as right? This is what I'm going to do. I'm good enough. I mean, when did that? Did it ever twig like that, or does it just? This is what I want to do right from the start. It, it, it sort of crept up on me over a period of years. Um, getting picked for the England boys team, I thought, right now, you know, I'm top 12 in the country. You know, these are the 12 best English golfers, boy golfers of kind of my generation. And, you who, know, who I, was in the team with you? Do you know, you know I can't remember. Because yeah. um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was one of the younger ones of that. I had about four years in it, you know, right. so 15 to. 19 I guess yeah um, so Ian Garbutt would have been my England boys captain when I first got into the England boys team and um, when I left it I was the England boys captain so. right. but Michael Welsh yeah. uh, who not probably not a lot of people would have heard of on your 
Well, I did a story on him, um, you know, last year for Golf Digest America and Mm. extraordinary record. Phenomenal talent, yeah. 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 I mean, nobody hit it better than Michael for a year and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, Even in the men's game, I would say, you know, the dominance, his dominance of the boys' game was, uh, I don't think it's probably been done, done again. Well, not to the extent that he did. Yeah, I mean, it was. So, a, uh, I remember seeing a picture of him with all the trophies. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so the amateur game was good. You know, it, I made a lot of friendships and uh, played. You know, played a lot of good golf courses. Mm-hmm. And at what moment did you think I'm turning pro? What, what tipped you over the edge? Um, like? I, I, I think progressing through the England teams and getting into the England men's team, and then starting to win things like. Uh, the leaving gold medal and <laughs> yeah. uh, the British youths. Yeah. Well, you were kind of starting to dominate at that level, which I always think you kind of have to do. Yeah, and I was you winning know? by uh, you know a few, a few uh, shots, not yeah. just you know, mm-hmm. and I was starting to shoot low scores around good golf courses, you know, sixty fives and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it was it was, it was ha- high quality golf that I was playing, and I turned pro playing good good stuff as well, which is, I think is important. Mm-hmm. You know, there's. I see guys come out and they're not playing great. You know, they feel like it's their time to turn pro, but they're not playing well at the time. And they come out and, you know, it's it's crushing for them. You know, the they, their confidence takes a hit and yeah. some of them never recover from it. Um, I, I, I say to most kids, you know, what, you know, they say, when do you think I should turn pro? I say, well, make sure you're playing well when you do turn pro. Yeah. How do you compare <clears throat> that Lee Westwood with Lee Westwood now in terms of the <laughs> level of play golfer? The 19-year-old Lee yeah. with the 49-year-old well, the, the guy who just Westwood. turned pro, yeah. Um, I've obviously had a lot more experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, backswing's probably not quite as long. Hip turns, probably not quite as mm-hmm. deep yeah. and fluid. Um, yeah, but <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've learned things along the way, as anybody does growing up. You know, yeah. I've, I've grown up. You know, people have seen me out here playing golf. They've seen me grow up. I've grown up playing golf and playing on the European tour. So, um, just wiser. But what, what I was trying to get you to there was you, you, early on, I mean, you were a phenomenal winner. Hmm. I mean, you were winning at an incredible rate. It, it took know. me a few years to get the yeah. knack of it, but, mm. you know, I, I obviously turned pro in 93 and 94 was my first year. Um, came out of the blocks pretty quickly, made the first 12 cuts, had enough to keep my card. So, cruised through the rest of the year got to Valderrama which was a goal that year had a poor second year um, but then went to see Pete and he turned turned my game this around Pete Cowan yeah Pete Cowan and uh, um, had a couple of chances at the start of 96 and then in August 96 won the Scandinavian Masters and then it was really a, a massive injection of confidence and belief then and uh, went and won Japan at the end of that year visa to hell and then the following year Picked up with a win in Kuala Lumpur, the Malaysian Open, and and really went on from there in '97. Uh, won I think three more. Um, the Aussie Open at the end of '97. Yeah. I won the Aussie Open, yeah, and then '98. I think I won eight tournaments worldwide. '99, maybe four tournaments, and then 2000, another eight tournaments worldwide. Yeah, that's so what I mean, I mean that's yeah, incredible that was, reach. Uh, yeah. And and when you're in it, you you don't have time to appreciate what's going on. Um, you know, you, you kind of get into a mindset where you, you keep going home, putting the trophy on the sideboard, then going away on the following Tuesday and picturing another trophy 
there on the sideboard when you get back. You know, if you if you're winning eight times a year, you know, if you're playing twenty four tons, you're winning one, once every three weeks, aren't you? So yeah, um, yeah, it, it definitely got a habit, and I don't want to say you know I, I didn't appreciate it or, but it, it certainly didn't dawn on me at the time how well how good it it was to be winning that often yeah, and you that. probably appreciate it more now than yeah you. I do looking yeah. back yeah. yeah yeah I know how hard winning is and it was coming easy at that time yeah, yeah. talk a bit about the um, the Australian Open which I know was one of the bigger wins given who you beat mm. down the stretch and given this is for Golf Australia magazine so mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll be interested in your thoughts on what went on that day yeah so I played well <laughs> all of 97 and uh, and then at the end of 97 I went on a uh, a tour around the rest of the world <laughs> Um, we always used to take in the Visa Teo and the Dunlop Phoenix. And from there, I went down and played in... Um, well, prior to the the Visa Teo, I went to uh, Chateau Elan to play the uh, World Open or something like Gene that. Sarazen Gene Sarazen yeah, World yeah, Open. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I qualified for through winning the Malaysian Open, I think. Went there, finished second to Mark Kalkovecchia. Uh, nearly, nearly pipped him. He had about a ten-shot lead with nine holes to go, and I got it down to one with mm. one hole to go. Uh, and then flew from there to Japan, and I won the uh, um, Visa Teo. And then the following week, I think I played the Dunlop Phoenix and finished third or something like that. Didn't win, but finished third or fourth. And then from there, I went down to Australia, and it was the Aussie Open at Metropolitan. Uh, played well all week and found myself. Um, I, I played with Nick Ahern in the third round um, and I think Greg Norman was in the second last group and he shot a good round and I shot a good round and we found ourselves paired together in the final round And uh, What was it like at that point? I mean he was Yeah you know, I mean I'd he met was, Greg Was he world number one at that point? Yeah I'd, I'd met Greg but I'd grown up you know idolising Greg you know yeah. he, he was really the, you know the golfer I wanted to be because he's been world number one for so long I loved the way he played golf you know so aggressively um, More than Faldo he was your guy? Yeah, 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 more than Sebi, more than Faldo. Yeah, really? Wow. Well, all the European guys, you know, I wanted to, you know, hit it like Greg, really. Swashbuckling style. Mm-hmm. Um, and found myself in the final round of the Australian Open in Melbourne playing against Greg Norman, who was still world number one and mm-hmm. um, a hero to many down there mm-hmm. uh, and ended up beating him on the fourth extra playoff hole, which I, I guess... I wasn't the most popular, but no. you know the, the people of Melbourne certainly, you know, em- embraced me, and you know could see that yeah. a young kid from the other side of the world had come over, and uh, yeah. I well, think they appreciated yeah. that, that well, I'd they know taken, golf. Yeah, yeah, I'd taken Greg on around a brilliant golf course, and and you know just managed to pip him, held my own, held my bottle, and managed to pip him. Yeah, I don't even know the answer to this question. Did you go back and defend it? I didn't. Um, probably wish I had. Um, I went back the following. January and played in the Aussie Masters. That was my next tournament after the Australian. Right. So I kind of went home and then went back to Australia mm-hmm. as Australian Open champion. But I couldn't get down there for some reason. I think they changed the date and it was up against another tournament that I was defending, maybe in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I couldn't, I couldn't make it back. I remember asking Phil Mickelson this question and he gave the the diplomatic answer. I asked him how did he feel lucky or unlucky to have played at the same time as Tiger. Now you took him on a couple of times and you beat him few times mm. but um he Phil took the view that he made a lot more money because of tiger but he didn't he won fewer tournaments yeah. because of tiger is that probably how that's you a fair see point it? yeah yeah i wouldn't disagree with that i think we we're lucky to have played in the tiger era where clearly 
TV money's gone up and purses have gone up. Um, I think we're lucky to play against probably the best player of all time. You know, to to test ourselves. I think if you want to if you want to be great at any sport, it's nice to play against somebody who's regarded as the best ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's. Uh, I feel fortunate to have you know played in that era and played against Tiger a lot of times. You know, he, he normally beat me, but once or twice, you know, I I got one over on him. Mm-hmm. What made him better than everybody else? His rubbish was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his rubbish was really good. You know, when he played poorly, um, you know, he could still win tournaments. It, uh, and phenomenal putter and short game. Um, I believe, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I believe he learned his short game from Butch, who learned a lot of the technique from Greg. And Greg learned a lot of the technique from playing out on the European Tour with Seve. Right, yeah. So that is <clears throat> that kind of filtered down through... Um, you know, a few generations of players there. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's the old story about Tiger playing a practice round at Augusta with Seve and Jose Maria, Maria yeah. and disappearing after nine holes to go and practice what he'd seen them doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of learning, you know, yeah. passing it down, yeah. Yeah. Did you, um, you mentioned Pete Cowan earlier. I mean, have you always been a, what kind of learner are you? Are you a, do you need the sort of backup of the feel or information or, Somebody's showing you how to do it. I mean, what's the best way for you to learn? I'm a very visual learner. So, uh, you know, it helps if I can... Camera phone's been great for me, you know, being able to see, you know, what I'm doing and and put a feel to it. Because often I'll have a lesson and then I'll try and build a feel up and I'll think, yeah, that's right. And then I'll look at it on camera and I'll think, well, that's not changing how I thought it might or, you know, it's not not moved enough. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I learn very easily that way and Pete's always been good at, um, giving me feels um, and developing my own feels rather than giving me his feels, how he would feel a certain move with his body. Yeah, pretty much everybody plays by feel ultimately, I think. Yeah. You know, yeah in well, the end, you know. You know, your hands are the only thing in contact with the club, aren't they? So you've got to, you've got to develop your own feel. And yes, it, yes, it is. Yeah. You couldn't play by numbers putting it in position you know i'll stand on a range and work on positions but the last part of the range session is synchronizing it all together at speed which a lot of that comes down to feel yeah i mean i had dennis Pugh on this um podcast a few months ago now and i think he said that he and monty had fired each other 17 times something like that Mm. you're now back working with pete for the umpteenth time yeah it's not 17 it's probably how often is it four or five right okay um yeah it's not so much a firing it's more of a needing a different point of view and a bit of space you know you spend a lot of time together i'm I'm going back and working with caddies as well that you know i had caddy for me years ago i had mickey doran caddy for me Mm. a few weeks back and you know enjoyed that i mean myself and mickey won 16 tournaments in three years and, and I fired him after that. So he, he must be thinking, what did, what did I have to do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you spend a lot of time together and occasionally you do need a break. Mm. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just business. And I think as long as you part on good terms and there's no real dramatic falling out, obviously things get a little bit tetchy. But, you know, if you don't say anything you shouldn't say, then... There's no reason you shouldn't come back and work together. You know, I've, there's there's very few people in the game of golf that I would have more respect for than Pete Cowan. Yeah. Have you had any bad breakups? No, not really. No, no, no. no. 
I mean, you're, uh, it's, it's it, amusing, stroke interesting to me that your your wife caddies for you as much as she does. Yeah. Um, the regular caddies are probably looking at that and thinking, you know, you're not doing us our image at least any good because, as you've told me, I don't think your wife knows a hell of a lot about golf and isn't giving you a hell of a lot of advice. Now, now yeah, she's well, she probably does. Yeah. yeah, but you know, you know what I'm saying. She's yeah. you're, she's basically just carrying the bag, and you're doing a lot of things that. The caddy yeah. would like to be involved in yeah. the regular caddy. She carries the bag, obviously, which is not no easy thing. And she's great psychologically for me. You know, she she listens to and you know has her own conversations with the, my psychologist Ben, um, and we discuss what you know I, I, I'm doing with Ben, and she can you know jog my memory and be there as a mm-hmm. a sounding board for yeah. me. You know, knowing when to talk about other things or you know asking me questions about how I'm feeling and getting that bringing, getting that out in the opening for, you know, I'm feeling under pressure. And uh, obviously she she doesn't do too much um, with yardages and clubs and wind direction and things like that. I work all that out, but that's good for me because, you know, we're out there for five hours and there's a lot of stuff to think about. It, well, well, there's a lot of time to think about stuff that you shouldn't be thinking about. Yeah. And if I'm doing yardages, it, it's a distraction. You know, it gets me into the shot without thinking about how, how I'm going to swing it or where the trouble is. You know, if yeah. I'm thinking about where the pin is and what the yardage is, I'm not thinking about where the water yeah. or where the bunkers are. Well, you're, you're thinking, you've got less time to think about technique. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I mean, is this going to be an ongoing thing? I mean, um, is Helen going to be a, you know, and how do you choose when she's on and when she's not? We do that purely by... Uh, parenting schedules really you know um my two kids are are fairly well grown up now sam and poppy but Mm -hmm. helen's got a daughter edie uh, from her first marriage and she's only 12 so we we don't like to be apart from her too much i don't like helen to be away for her for too long so two weeks is about the max you know we try and do and uh, we factor in from them there's a few guys out there on tour um you know, caddies. If Sam can't do it, because Sam does it occasionally, but he's mm-hmm. he's doing his university degree at the moment. Where is he? In Newcastle. Newcastle. Just finishing it off, mm-hmm. um, and then he and then he wants to have a go. At, you know, trying to be as good a golfer as he can. You know, mm-hmm. see what level he can get to. And when he can't do it, then you know, I get one of the other guys in, like Mickey, that worked for me. Yeah. Uh, Lee Warren uh, is caddying for me this week at the British Masters. He worked for Brandon Grace for a long time, and. Uh, Alex Noren and at the start of the year Dan Parrott worked for me in Abu Dhabi so uh, you know it's it's nice that those guys will you know they're kind of freelance I guess and you know they, they do it every now and again and uh, uh, how does that work with your the philosophy that you just told me about how you do the yardages and all the rest of it I, do, I carry on doing you, the same you just do yeah it. you know I give them these are the rules and uh, right they're, they're professional enough to yeah. easy week for them really yeah he's okay yeah. yeah just carry the bag and keep up yeah keep up shut up you know <laughs> the old cliche um we mentioned uh tiger obviously uh, phil and ernie were the two that um stepped up the most probably ernie vj i mean you can't vj absolutely yeah you could not say vj didn't step up he, i mean he won 10 no, no, tournaments absolutely. in a year and yeah, took yeah. the world number one spot yeah yeah uh, he um it was interesting that Tiger got in everybody's head as much as he did, you know, because Phil certainly backed off a little bit in terms of. Did he get in everybody's head, or was he just that good? Was well, he just brilliant. What do you think? I think he was just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But there must have been a time, you know. Well, you were maybe one of the exceptions, you know, taking him on down the last nine holes on Sunday afternoon. 
there was plenty of occasions where there was certainly a time when it was the least, the sort of less heralded players were the ones that were stepping up and going yeah, to like a lot of people, and guys like that. You know? Yeah, I think a lot of people looked yeah. at it as a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, we can't lose it, can we? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's Tiger yeah. supposed to win, so yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a few of the other guys that you know maybe thought they should be winning more often than they should, maybe you know, or not him again, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, but yeah, you're right to bring up VG. He kind of gets overlooked. Yeah, at the at the, the start of Tiger becoming dominant, yeah, in '99, um, Retief Goosen had a, a spell where you know he he won a lot, but I think you know VJ, Phil, and and Ernie, yeah, stand out the most. Yeah, mm-hmm. which of those would be the best in your mind? Who would be number two or one A after Tiger? I think Ernie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm an Ernie guy too. I yeah, admit, you know, so. I don't know why either. Yeah. I just think that I would. I, I think if Tiger hadn't have taken all their majors in that time, I think Ernie would have taken the most. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ernie said to me once that he was told um, his whole life that he was going to be the best player, and he believed that he was going to be the best player. So mm. it came as a bit of a shock to find out that. Suddenly he wasn't. You know. Yeah, that's an uncontrollable goal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should always make goals that you can control. Mm-hmm. For example? Being the best that you can be rather than... Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Ernie's not disappointed with the man he's turned into. No, no. No, absolutely not. You know, he's got a lovely family and he, he always appears to do things right. He enjoys himself when he, yeah. you know, yeah. wants to. How, where does the becoming world number one ranking... Your list of achievements. Number one, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think any time you can sort of stand in a... I was telling the story the other day, you know, when you're world number one, it dawns on you at strange times. And any time you can stand in the uh, in the bread aisle of the supermarket and think, I'm the best golfer in this supermarket, <laughs> this supermarket. Yeah, yeah. then uh, it, it, it's a big world, isn't it? Especially if you travel it a little bit and get out there and see it and see how many people play golf and how many golf courses there are and um, to, to get to the pinnacle of anything is obviously especially when you've worked so hard for it you're not given anything yeah um, and I guess it was in the Tiger era because I took the number one spot of Tiger as well exactly so, yeah you know it's not you know that, that's got to be a little bit more that's the cherry on top of the cake I guess does it surprise you that Tiger mucked about with his technique as much as he did not really, because no. I think great players like that, we all strive to be better. And if you stand still, then you're just going to stay at that level. So you, you try and look for little places where you can fine-tune things and tweak things. Are you still like that? Body, uh, yeah, I, I... You seem much more relaxed with life I, at the moment. I enjoy the journey more than, uh, than I used to. Um, you know, it used to be all about winning, but I I enjoy going out on the range and hitting balls and practicing almost as much as I do playing. You know, I like playing. I love competing and testing myself. But, you know, I enjoy the journey more now. I've always enjoyed the journey from, you know, starting playing golf really to where I am now. Um, but, yeah, I'm certainly in a good place in, in life. There was one blip, though, um... There's been more than the one slump. Blip. The slump. It's been more than one blip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that was the most notable one. I mean, you were in. 
you were in trouble there. Was there a moment where you thought, I'm not coming back from this? Yeah, for sure. A few times, yeah. Wanting to give it up and kind of thinking, is this rock bottom? Oh, no, there's there's worse to come. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I'm at rock bottom. No, I'm not. There's, there could be even more coming. But, you know, you, I, I'm not the type to give up. So, you know, you're just always looking for a way, you know, what am I going to do? You're looking for a plan and a route out of it. Yeah. What the hell happened, though? I mean, it was it one morning you woke up because it's there, for the grace of God, there's plenty of examples of guys that had it one day and gone the next. Yeah. Was it a steady deterioration for you, or are you just on the wrong track? Or I think that's what just was the, it? the vagaries of golf and yeah. how precise it is, and how pre- how precise you have to be, and you know how many different facets come in come into it that just one goes, it can it can wreck your whole game. Yeah. So you've always got to stay on top of everything, and you know that's the hard thing about golf: di- splitting up your time and and apportioning enough to each part of the game where you hold your game at, you know, the, especially when you're world number one, you hold the game at the at the highest level. Yeah. Um, and then when I did start to play poorly, I, I felt my swing going in 2000, even when I was playing well and, and I won the Order of Merit in Europe. Um, and then I had a good period of time off at the beginning of 2001 because I was tired. I came back and I couldn't get any kind of rhythm or... I think the synchronisation in my golf... Looking back now, I think the synchronisation in my golf swing went. And it's all right going through the right positions, but you've got to be going through them at the right time yeah. and have the speed and the power in at the right time. And I think I lost all that. And then I went from um, coach to coach and, you know, that... Trying to listening to too many people and um, trying too many different things, and you you if it's a straight road, you know you're always going to have little offshoots off the road. But you know I was going off too wide, and yeah. eventually I couldn't see the the road that I, I originally took. Yeah. And yet you came here at the Belfry. We're we're here for the British Masters um, in 2002 with the for the postponed Ryder Cup and and managed to compete pretty well. I mean, I know you've given Sergio a fair bit of credit for that yeah. um, in your time, but did he help in terms of attitude? At yeah, least? more than anything. I was struggling mentally. You know, I hadn't played very well for a while. And, uh, you know, Sergio was a very bubbly character and very confident man. You know, he he that rubbed off on me, really. Yeah. Um, I was only in that Ryder Cup team because of what, I've done, what I'd done at the end of 2000, yeah. really. Yeah, it wouldn't have been the same team in 2002 had it been normal. No, exactly. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, I was never not going to play because that's not fair on the Americans. Um, and I just didn't want to let anybody down, really, you know, because you're obviously representing your other 11 teammates yeah, yeah. and uh, you want to play as well as you can. Fortunately, I played well and... Uh, and we were unlucky, really, not to win four out of four points, me and Sergio. He, he missed one from about four feet on 17. We were one up with two to play against Davis Love and, uh, and Tiger Woods. And uh, he missed one from about four feet to go one up with one to play on 17. And I missed from about four feet on the last. So we lost the last two holes to go from one up to one down. Fortunately, it didn't affect the overall result. Is there a worse place to be in golf than at a Ryder Cup playing badly? Not no, not many places. No. <laughs> Have you been in that position? I mean, no, been in that position through? a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stood on the range, say on a Tuesday or Wednesday, thinking, "Oh God, this does not feel good yeah. this week." Because you're not going to find it at a Ryder Cup. Probably not. No. Which ones were they? Well, certainly that one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Hazel Teen mm-hmm. comes to mind. Um, it's probably been a couple. Have you got to be honest? Played well most of the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But have you got to be honest enough to to tell the captain where you are? Yeah, when you're at that. Yeah, yeah. is that what you do? I've stood in front of captains and said, "Don't be afraid to drop me." No. You know, I'm not. I'm by no means flushing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I want you to get. I've got a little. We're going to do a little quiz here. Mm, I had right. a look at you. I did some research. Can you believe for this? You've had 13 Ryder Cup partners in your career. Tell me how many you can name. I could probably name a lot. Go on then. Um, Well, I will start from the beginning. This is a very good place to start. Indeed. With Faldo. Yep. And Darren Clark. Yep. And Sergio Garcia. Yep. And then Sergio Garcia and Darren Clark at... Detroit. Yep. And then Darren and Monte. Yep. In at the K Club. Mm-hmm. And then Soren Hansen. Oh, that was the one I thought you might not get. In Valhalla. Yeah. yeah. And Martin Keimer and Luke Donald. Yeah. You're even getting them in the right order. I know. Uh, you're breaking my concentration. Don't yeah, do that. Right. Well, I'm trying and, that. Yeah. Uh, Molinari. Yep. How often did I play with Molinari there? Twice. Yeah. I might only have played twice, I'm not sure. Yeah. Should we move on to 14? Where was that? I'm struggling to remember where Ryder Cups were. Well, you're at uh, Medina. So it must have been Glen Eagles after that, was it? No, Glen Eagles is 2012. No, Uh, no, 2014, but Medina's 2012. And you've missed one. I've missed one there. And it's one that I thought you would get right away. It's the easiest game you've ever played in the right. Oh, yeah, Nicholas Falsars. Yeah. Yeah, I would have got that. Because I remember saying to you, well played, Lee, after that one, and I got a dirty look from you. I didn't do anything. I powered the 12th. (laughs) That was it. Yeah. Uh, So that's, yeah, Molinari and Colsarts. Yep. You've got four more to get. Right. Jamie Donaldson. Yep. Where are we going next? Danny Willett and Thomas Peters. Yep. Um, didn't play the next one. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, which was at... In front. Um, um, Matt Fitzpatrick. Matt Fitzpatrick. Well done. Yeah, you got them all. That's pretty good for somebody of your advancing years I know, you know, I to know. remember all that. You know. Yeah. So, do you find that... I think that's a bit of a compliment, the fact that you played with so many. I mean, you played yeah. with more and more as you got older and more yeah, experienced. More experience, yeah. You started off with... You kind of stuck with the same guys, but... Guys who've got similar games to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Darren and, and Sergio. We, yeah. we, we're good drivers of the golf ball. We did it similar distances. Yeah. What's your philosophy on partnerships? It's different for foursomes and four balls. Foursomes, obviously. I think you want similar games, so you're not in... You don't end up in places that you're right. not used to. Right. And... Uh, four balls it's just about chemistry really I think you know mm-hmm. who knows who'd have said me and Colsarts was a good pair well I mean I could have gone out with Nicholas Colsarts that day let's be honest yeah you, know. you could yeah uh, I mean, I'm not I won't dis- yeah. dispute no no I mean no. I, it's not, a, not an insult to you because <laughs> he was ridiculous <laughs> yeah you know he just hold everything having he? said that yeah. we did only win on the last I know but you were so playing Tiger so if I hadn't have been there on 12 you know well that's true we'd have yeah. hard I'm sure he'd give you a lot of credit afterwards you know. he needed to yeah <laughs> 
Yeah. I was like a cheerleader that day. Yeah. Somebody should have just given me some pom-poms. <laughs> That's true. That would have been a sight. Um, so, Ryder Cups, I mean, everybody talks about the three levels of pressure. You know, tournament pressure, major championship pressure, yeah. Ryder Cup pressure. Why? It's always intrigued me a bit that guys like you who've played for majors and money, you know, unimaginable, get into the Ryder Cup. There's no money. You're playing for a point. Why is it? I mean, I've seen guys like, you know, who can hardly walk at the end, never mind hit the golf ball. Yeah, with well, the shakes on the first. Yeah, why does it get to that point? I think it's partly to do with the length of the build-up. You know, everybody talking about it. It comes around once every two years, doesn't it? So it's not like a major championship. You always think, oh, there's another major championship in, in a month or yeah. a couple of months or whatever. Um, I think there's a, a big part of not wanting to let anybody down, not wanting to let your partner down or your rest of your teammates. Um, and I just think, you know, it's the Ryder Cup. It's prestigious and mm-hmm. you want to beat the Americans. Yeah, which you did. They want to beat us. For an extraordinary level, a number of times recently. Forget the last one, but um, any explanation for that? I mean, the, the, on what, pa- the amount we've won? Yeah, on paper, that shouldn't have been. Ha- yeah, I can see you winning now and again, but to the point where you did, I mean, it makes little sense on paper, at least. Yeah, I think um, we, we've been the better side when we've won, mm. and they've been the better side when they've won. I think a lot of it comes down to who plays the last hole the best because it's very fine margin yeah. on, you know it's very rarely do you get like a 7 and 6 or 6 and 5 it's always like 2 and 1 or 3 and 2 yeah. or, or 1 up you know the, the the final hole who can hold their nerve and you know make that 6, 7 footer when they need to yeah um, makes a massive difference you know the difference between well, at the level you're talking about it's going yeah, to be it's huge too. yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a 2 point swing isn't it so yeah. albeit and the occasional one where some, again, at your mm. level, they go, somebody goes out and just plays like Coulthard did. Yeah, but we still only won on the last. Well, yeah, but you you, can, you see the big wins occasionally when somebody just goes mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Normally against Woozy, isn't it? Oh, it's no explaining <laughs> that either. Never won a singles. Ridiculous. Yeah. So, um, the last time um, it's fine margins, as I say, in the Ryder Cup. I was talking to somebody about the last Ryder Cup, which, on the face of it. America won convincingly. But I was saying on the Saturday night, if you think about it, this is how you can look at things. It was 11-5 for America. (coughs) Excuse me. But that basically, to me, six-point difference came down. The only difference there was Rory playing poorly and Rory playing well. Rory played poorly. Well, I won't talk about anybody else's game, but Mm -hmm. looking back at Hazeltine, um, I played with Danny and... I think we lost on the last, and I played average. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played average, let Thomas down when I played with him, and I think we lost maybe two and one or something like that. Maybe even lost on the last. And then in the singles, I lost on the last as well. So, yeah. um, you know, while Stazel team looked like a a big loss, you know, if, if, if I'd have played all right that week, I feel yeah. like, you know, it, it would have been close. Yeah. So it does come down to one or two players, you know, not pulling the weight every now and again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's always the same in every team that if your top two or three players in your team, if they all play well and, and win most of their games, yeah, the very worst thing that can happen is that you'll lose narrowly. Yeah. And you'll probably win. Yeah. You know. And then if you've got somebody that steps into the team and, and just becomes a natural, like Thomas Peters did yeah. at Hazel team, mm-hmm. um, then 
it gives you an even better chance, doesn't it? You know, we had a load of rookies somewhere. Detroit, we didn't particularly have an experienced team there. And all the rookies, everybody won a point. All the yeah. rookies come, came in and, uh, you know, did a, did a bit of a job. And then all of a sudden you win by a record margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, uh, I mean, Rory, uh, the last time, got very emotional publicly about how badly he'd played or how badly he felt he'd played. There must be some examples of that that you can share with us that you, where you've seen extreme emotion, in, certainly in the, the team room. I mean, if you can take us in there as much as you can, I know what's in there, supposed to stay in there. Yeah. Give every, us a flavour of it. Everybody's always emotional, whether we win or whether we lose. So, uh, you know, it, it is an emotional week. You know, l- l- emotional levels are running high and at the end of it, it's either a big release or you just got it because you've lost. You know, sat in the changing rooms at Brookline in 99, you know, when um, Justin Leonard all that put on 17, you know, and and then uh, Jose Maria missed his. You know, it was like I was sat in the clubhouse with a couple of other people and, uh, you know, I didn't burst into tears, but, you know, they, they burst into tears, you know. Yeah, Brookline. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, you, you put a lot into it, really. Mm-hmm. Have you come close to that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, especially this last one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it was having Sam there caddying for me, or you know, um, you know, feeling like it might be my last Friday Cup. Who knows? But it, you know, it may have been. You know, it just I, I just got a bit emotional. What normally makes you emotional? Are you, do you cry uh, at love story? You no, story? not really. Um, <laughs> great sporting achievements. Yeah, mm. yeah. I'm watching a story, you know, where somebody's overcome adversity. Yeah. You know, I get emotional then. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to somebody just the other day about this, and, you know, you're right. You hear, I love watching somebody, even sports that I know nothing about or have no interest in, if it's done at, you know, an incredible level, you can watch it. And it mm. I always use the example of ice dancing. Yeah. You thought, ice dancing. And then you saw Torval and Dean, and he went, wow. Yeah. You know, is a have you got some examples? Yeah, or of that? a horse race. Yeah, you know, where horses. Yeah, if I watch a horse race that involves secretariat, yes, I get I get emotional. Yeah, um, I got a little bit emotional the other day watching Ronnie O'Sullivan win the World Championship because I could see it meant a lot to him, and yeah. you know, um, just when somebody's battle back from a dark place you know and it, you can see it means a lot to them you know mm-hmm. it make, yeah. makes me emotional yeah. yeah so it brings a tear to the eye does it a little bit yeah yeah well that's nice good to know good to know um inevitably i have to ask you about um majors now i, I did a story at the masters this year because as it turned out um it was sandy lyle's 100th major mm. he had no idea of course but it was his 100th so, which made me delve into sandy's record in the 100 majors he won two, as we know. Um, he had two other top tens. Get away. In both in the open. Really? His only top ten in American major was when he won at Augusta. Wow. He missed the cut in 47 and withdrew in two. So he basically half the time he was home by the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, for this, I then had a look at your record. Uh, 89. I didn't win two. No, but, but I'm getting to that. 89 majors you've played in, 19 top 10s and only 19 missed cuts. I mean, that's an extraordinary record. I mean, I know that, that people all point say, well, he never won one. But my goodness, I mean, over a long period, that's something yeah. you should be proud of, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah, I've played golf to a high level for a very long time now, and you know that is something I'm proud of. Yeah, yeah, I think longevity in sports is. I look at Tom Brady. You know, he's carrying on, and um, Ronaldo's carrying on playing at a high level at football, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, yeah, seven Six. seven world championships. You know, it takes it takes a lot of dedication and hard work to stay at the top level for a long time. Mm. What would be the one that you'll look back on though? And Probably think. the open at Turnbury. Mm-hmm. Um, I played well all week, and the, and I thought I've been thinking well all week, and I just got out of being in the moment, being in the present. And I look back and I thought, oh, well, Tom's going to make par from there. I need I need to make this, and I charged the eight foot past the Mystic coming back and missed out on the playoff. So, and the other one would be Torrey Pines in. Uh, when Tiger won, when Tiger won. Yeah. Um, you know, people I'd, forget you were playing with Tiger. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I was one out of the playoff. You know, yeah. I was on the final green when he all that put. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I feel like I could have, I, sh- I probably should have won that US Open. Mm. I think Phil winning in two thousand and ten, he beat you there. Yeah, he shot sixty seven and I shot seventy one, and I think he won by three. And um, Danny winning in two thousand sixteen. We kind of backed into it, didn't we, with uh, Jordan making a mess at 12. Uh, and then Danny made a great birdie at 16 and I hit the wrong club and then three-putted. Or didn't hit the wrong club, it hit a poor shot in the middle of the green, didn't strike it properly. Um, I guess other seconds, the open at St Andrews in 2010. Nobody was ever really close to him. That was Louis. Louis, yeah. Yeah, it may hit the draw had a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I would say if Rory had had Louis draw, he might have won it by twelve. Well, you, you never know. Yeah, and there's no point in doing ifs and buts no. in, in professional golf, especially Open Championships with the weather. Yeah. Um, would you like to go back to the middle of that fairway at Turnbury though, and or, or look back at Watson and know that he was taking five? That would have changed everything. No, not really. You know, you do what you think's right at the, yeah, at the time. I'm not sure you did anything wrong, but you would, that yeah. must be. You must, I, I mean, you'd be I, less than human if you didn't think. On, on 15, I had a great shot in there, and it got a horrible kick off a, a mound short of the flag and flew through. We were playing to keep it short of the pin. It whizzed through the back off this mound and went into the back trap, and you couldn't get it up and down from there. So I made bogey, and then uh, I missed a green long left on 16 chipped down and left a putt hanging on the edge 17 I had two good shots in there to about 12 foot and left it hanging on the edge for eagle so you know the luck wasn't smiling down on me and then I did that at 18 which was my own doing but you know I didn't I just didn't have the breaks when I needed them coming in yeah yeah so how do you view those sort of things with the benefit of hindsight I mean is there regrets? Is there shrug of the shoulders? I just shrug my shoulders then. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't do regrets. Um, you know, they're worthless, really. Yeah, you just you you've got to do what you feels right at the time and be committed to that. See, I'm in the the reason I brought up Sandy not not to pick on Sandy, but you know, Sandy's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, and I'm sure you'll be in at some point, but. You know, it's it's an extraordinary record. You, I, mean, I, would, I knew you'd been up there. You know, I wouldn't be in the World Golf Hall of Fame from a major record, would I? No, you would. That's my point. Yeah, I think you can. And it's the called game. the World Golf Hall of Fame, so I've been world number one. <coughs> I've won more times around the world in different countries than anybody else. So if anybody's a worldly golfer, you know, it's me. I've won in nineteen different countries. You know, nobody's. 
I think the next best 11 yeah. Ernie and Gary so yeah, was, if it's a World Golf Hall of Fame, yeah. Well, they used to have the international section in the yeah. World Golf Hall of yeah. Fame, believe it or not. Well, we'll not go too strongly into that, will we? No, no. Um, I also, I mean, kind of tongue in cheek. I always, I mean, I'm a big admirer of longevity, which which you've had, <clears throat> and um, I was kind of almost a little bit tongue in cheek. I make the case sometimes that Sam Snead might be the greatest golfer of all time, because Sam Snead was competitive in majors in his 60s mm. which nobody else has done he's the only one your thoughts well, that's the great thing about golf isn't it there's so many different things that you can rate mm-hmm. players on yeah so uh, yeah I mean I mean look at Langer what Langer does you know mm-hmm. still competitive at, yeah. at 64 is he maybe not in major championships yeah. but mm. I would say it's, it was easier for Sam Snead to be competitive in major championships in that era than it would be get, uh, yeah. Bernard Langer in this era. Yeah. You know, the, the length well, the, of the golf courses has changed. Distances. Technology, has te- you know, distances has changed golf so much um, that, you know, we're having to find new ways of rating people, if you want to call it that, yeah. yeah. You touched on that there, and you know fine well that I bang on about it to probably an excessive degree, but the the state of the game at your level in terms of the distance and the equipment and the rest of it, um, I I maintain that the game at your level isn't as much fun to watch as it was back in the days of Trevino and Seve and the rest of them. It's not a criticism of the players, it's a criticism of the game. Where, where do you stand? In all it's not that? as it's not as much fun to play as well. Even from when I, uh, you know, started playing in the nineties, you could move the ball around. Um, if you didn't have a good technique, you know, you could the ball the ball would balloon on you, and yeah. distance control was a lot harder. Now I, I do clinics, and I say, you know, I'm going to move it this way, I'm going to move it that way, and it moves like a yard or two yards. Whereas you used to be able to move it 10, 15 yards, yeah. and people loved that, mm-hmm. and. It's a skill that's gone, unfortunately. We don't um, need it. But you, you, you found that the best ball striker had a had an advantage. Great drivers, the golf ball. You know that you know where you, when you had to actually hit it out the middle. Yeah. You don't have to hit it out the middle anymore, and it still goes three hundred yards and straight. You know that's the ball and the driver having a massive effect and taking great drivers of the golf ball their advantage away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Norman was one. Nick Price, Ian Wisdom, all got to number one in the world. And yeah, they separated themselves a lot through the driving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at your level. It's gone from the hardest thing to do to the easiest. I mean, how good a, how good would Seve have been this this day and age? Yeah. You know, if anything let him down, it was his driving, mm-hmm. wasn't it? And uh, you know, I, I I guess with with his short game and iron play and putting, he would he would have been dominating now. Yeah, and I think Tiger would have won even more. Yeah, quite mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I watched him play at the. President's Cup at Royal Melbourne and he was a different class from everybody else on that golf course because yeah. it was a golf course that encouraged that sort of play yeah. you know, even with that equipment yeah you know. there's no doubt about it you know in, in his heyday if, if if Tiger drove the ball well he was probably going to win by 10 yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean certainly the, the best golf I've ever seen was Pebble Beach when he won the US Open mm. so I would argue Akron, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dominating. Well, he won there every that's, time. <laughs> that's a yeah. great golf course to yeah. for, for good players. You know, you need to shape the ball around there. It's not driver everywhere. Mm-hmm. 
Lee, we're going to finish up with the inevitable. Um, I thought I was a wee bit sorry for you yesterday really? here at the Belfry when you were, you know, pummeled a little bit on your. You stuck your hand. One of the first to stick your hand up and say that you you want to play in the Saudi event next month. This this. Well, I've asked for a release. Yeah, for it, yeah. yeah. This podcast won't come out until maybe the week before that <laughs> tournament, so early June. So we're kind of getting ahead of it a little bit. I mean, what's your feeling on? I mean, your friend of mine, Eamon Lynch, who's been on this podcast, has already had a go. Um, it's hard to argue with the, the human rights stuff, but you've got to get past that. I don't, I don't argue with the human no. rights stuff. No, no. I, I've said before. You know, Saudi Arabia has got problems uh, with their human rights, and and a lot of countries around the rest of the world have as well. But they seem to be trying to do something about it um, it's interesting that people you know bring up you know women in Saudi Arabia but you know they're, they're obviously putting a lot of money into sport and one of the things they're putting in money into is women's golf you know they're the, mm. they're the biggest sponsor of women's golf worldwide so yeah. they are trying to improve and you know use golf as a, a vehicle for change mm-hmm. yeah I mean sport as a vehicle for yeah. change really yeah well hopefully and, I mean and, yeah, yeah. But having said that, they're, they're still chopping heads off and things. I mean, yeah, well, it's, you, know, you know, like 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 we said before, you know, I don't really want to get into you know political discussions and stuff like that on on the subject. Um, but yeah, you know, they they have got issues and uh, you know that they need to work on those. Do you think the whole thing's got a future? The the golf. I feel like golf is at a crossroads and if I'm being completely honest it's starting to get a bit boring and I think change would be good right now I think it's a when I look at golf the things I like are I would like it to be faster Uh, I think it takes too long I think that puts a lot of people off I like a team aspect in it I think people love the Ryder Cup they loved the pairs that was going on in the Zurich uh, a couple of weeks ago yep. on the PGA Tour. They like match play. You know, there's a match play element to this new live thing. Um, so they're trying to incorporate all of those. Um, so I'm, I'm quite excited about the format and the fact that, you know, it won't be 72 old tournaments week in, week out. And, you know, if you want confirmation that it's a good idea, Look at what the PGA Tour are trying to do at the end of the season. They're, it's almost an exact copy of what Live are trying to do with their events. So they must think it's a good idea yeah. as well. Yeah, if the worst thing that happens is that it provokes change, like you've just said. Yeah. I mean, I've argued recently that, I mean, the PGA Tour, and to extent this, I mean, it's a tired product. Mm. It's too much the same every week. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not paying attention. And I'm keen, I'm a total golf geek. And if I'm not paying attention, the casual fan probably isn't either. I love watching golf, but I, I, I don't watch it <laughs> half as much as I used to. I'll watch if I'm not in a major championship. I'll watch the last nine holes of a major championship. Um, I would watch the Ryder Cup, I guess, if I'm not in. I think the first round of the match play, even though they've gone to this uh, round robin groups yeah. type thing, I, I think the first day or the first couple of days, where there's a lot of games all on the course at the same time, is one of the most exciting. Hmm. That used to be year for watching my, golf. It was my favourite day when it was just straight match play. Yeah, mine too. The first yeah, round was yeah, I, tremendous. I, I think people, you know, like to see a, a bit of sort of. Um, I don't want to say 
shit or bust. But, you know, they want to see, mm. you know, people yeah. going home after one round. They yeah. want to see it happening quickly. <coughs> and I get that pros like yourself, they, they hate to say that they lost. That word lost comes into it. Yeah. You know, because you can, you get patted on the back for coming sixth <laughs> most weeks. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you, five guys beat you. You know, you know yeah. So. Well, I played 800 tournaments nearly and won 44 yeah. times. Yeah, well, and that's this, considered quite a high yeah. winning ratio. So. Yeah. Well, this week is your 584th European Tour event, or DP World Tour event, I should say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, my legs feel like it is as well. Mm-hmm. And you've won, I have, to, I have to tell you, you've won €38,635,337 so far. What have you done with it all? I don't know where all that's gone. Yeah. Uh, various places it's an expensive business it is an expensive yeah. business yeah one thing you've got to remember about golf is nobody pays our expenses if we don't play well you know it's uh, you don't earn any money that earn any money that week what's, what's an average week cost wise um, well it depends where it is so obviously this I'm week I'm not average. flying anywhere yeah. but if I'm flying to America you know I'll fly in business class um, by the time a caddy hotel it could be twelve thousand dollars to get there for the first week. Yeah, before you even start. Yeah. Before you even, even hit a ball. Yeah. Yeah. You've never. You've kind of gone in and out. You mentioned it yesterday in your press conference here. You, you've never been a, a PGA Tour guy, <clears throat> yeah. you like to the extent that some, and that you you've gone in and out. I mean, and actually, you, you, you say that. Um, it's not just me saying that. I actually had a meeting with Jay Monahan. Uh, at the players this year and he said to me he said you know we've never really got to know each other very well we've never sat down and yeah. and I've never really sat down with anybody from the PGA Tour very much and you know get to, got to know, know them and them get to know me yeah. which is a bit of a shame really which, you when, you consi- when you consider I've been around for 25 years well, since my last but you weren't there, there that much maybe in terms yeah of, you know, so. I've always considered myself a European Tour player you know I like playing on the European Tour I like playing in England in front of my own fans um for a period of time I lived in America so um, you know it made sense to play there but you know I predominantly lived in England um, and just enjoyed playing around the rest of the world as much as I have in the States so you know I've liked liked going down to Australia and playing in the Middle East and playing in Asia and you know hence I've won tournaments everywhere I've never wanted to just be one dimensional really and just play on the PGA Tour and yet, just to finish up, um, like me, when it comes to football, you're drawn to futility in Nottingham Forest. I mean, well, maybe not this year. Well, you know, the lights, the heady heights, and the bright flashing lights of the Premiership beckon. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe by the time this comes out, you'll be celebrating. But maybe I'll have been to the playoff final, and then we yeah. will have beaten whoever at Wembley. Yeah. 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 But there you were at St James's Park at the weekend watching Newcastle play Liverpool. I mean, well, I live in Newcastle, could, fifteen minutes. Well, from the but you're obviously easily, you know, turned. And a lot of my friends are Newcastle United fans, so and I knew I was coming here, so I didn't want to um, add in a six hours in a car backwards and forwards to the city ground because I needed. I knew I needed to mentally prepare for this podcast with you. Well, that's true. Well, and thank you for for doing that, and thank you for your time. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks. Cheers.
What a global superstar of the game Westwood has been for the best part of two decades. That major statistic that Huggy gave about Sandy Lyle really does point to just what a stalwart of the game the Englishman has been. Well, that's it for episode 67, but make sure to come back next time for a lesson in humility from one of this country's best coaches. I've been one Australian coach who's worked with some successful players. So you, you mentioned Mark Leishman before, who I still work with. We've had a relationship for over 20 years. I can say very sincerely that he is the same guy that I met all those years ago. Like, all his success, everything he's achieved in the world of golf hasn't changed him one iota. That's Dennis McDade, next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.